Hello and welcome to Pediapod for May 2023. This month, we hear how predictive models using both heart rate and respiratory data may improve neonatal sepsis detection. Early detection of late-onset sepsis reduces mortality and improves outcomes for survivors. However, the signs and symptoms of infection can be subtle and overlapping with other abnormalities associated with prematurity and can occur late in the course of illness. Heart rate characteristics and demographic factors have long been used to aid early detection of late-onset sepsis. However, respiratory data may contain additional signatures of infection. In this episode, we meet this month's highlighted early career investigator, Bryn Sullivan from the University of Virginia. She and her team developed machine learning models to predict late-onset sepsis that were trained on heart rate and respiratory data to provide a cardiorespiratory early warning system which outperformed models using heart rate or demographics alone. Here's Bryn. So I was born and raised in Virginia. I started out in Richmond, then went to college in Lexington, Virginia at Washington and Lee University. From there, I went to medical school at the University of Virginia, and I have been here ever since. I did my residency fellowship, and now I've been on faculty for five years at UVA. In residency, I discovered this interesting field of research involving predictive analytics for preterm infants. I stayed for fellowship, and that interest and research has sort of built into my career. And this paper that's highlighted using heart rate and SpO2 data to predict sepsis in premature infants. How common is late-onset sepsis in very low birth weight neonates? Late-onset sepsis, as defined by a positive blood culture treated with antibiotics, which is not a perfect definition, but it's sort of the best one we have right now. That happens in about 15% of very low birth weight infants. What makes the detection of it difficult? Well, the signs and symptoms of sepsis overlap with common conditions and physiologic changes in premature infants based on immature organ systems and things like apnea of prematurity are very common in healthy preterm infants, but apnea also increases near the onset of sepsis. Apnea, when it occurs near sepsis or any time, causes changes in heart rate and oxygenation, and we're monitoring those vital signs continuously in these infants who are in the NICU for months, but only Threshold-based alarms alert the clinical team to one of these vital signs just going outside of this generic threshold. And a lot of times in the NICU, the infants have scheduled assessments and the rest of the time are covered in an incubator by a blanket. There's a lot of alarm fatigue. Alarms are ignored sometimes until the signs of symptoms of sepsis are really obvious. And at that point, The care is reactive and not necessarily proactive. So the idea with predictive monitoring is to sort of tell you a little bit earlier that there's abnormal patterns that we can't see on the monitor, but that happen to correlate with sepsis and inflammation and to go look at the infant maybe a little bit sooner than you would otherwise. 
there's a couple of new components to the techniques that you're talking about in this study. One is, yeah, you've got this continuous monitoring of physiological measurements, but also you're incorporating not just the heart rate data, but also respiratory data as well. Correct. My research group has done a lot of work on heart rate analytics, and my mentors developed a heart rate characteristics algorithm that is in use in some NICUs. And the piece that this adds is the oxygenation. And in my work over the years, we've discovered that there's some important patterns in combining heart rate and oxygenation. One of those is the cross-correlation of the two. And that cross-correlation captures periods when the heart rate and SpO2 co-trend together, often in the setting of apnea with bradycardia and desaturation. So it's in a way quantifying changes in apnea frequency and severity, but also detecting subtle changes in heart rate and SpO2 in the form of desaturations and heart rate variability, all really a downstream effect of systemic inflammatory response to infection that affects the autonomic nervous system and the control of heart rate and breathing. And so it sounds like that would be too much for a clinician to monitor all those things at the same time. And that's why your team have used machine learning methods for this. Right. The bedside monitors only display a few seconds or minutes and even monitors that can look at trends. It's hard to detect all of these patterns at once and to translate it into something useful. And so the machine learning model takes all of these variables into account at once and translate it into a risk of sepsis in the next 24 hours. So we calculated these features continuously in the streaming data and then said, is there a sepsis diagnosis in the next 24 hours of this window of data and train the models that way and use multiple different machine learning methods to try and, and get it the best way to detect these patterns. So you retrospectively went back, you have all this data on these very low birth weight infants, on their vital signs, whether they went on to develop sepsis. And you basically wanted to know whether your machine learning methods that incorporated the heart rate data and the respiratory data, if that combined was more predictive than the heart rate data alone. Correct. We wanted to know if these features captured by the oxygenation, the SpO2 data, added to heart rate characteristics, and also whether baseline risk factors like gestational age, sex, and postnatal age also improve the risk prediction of sepsis. But understanding these are static risk factors, while the heart rate and SpO2 features are dynamic and can tell you that an infant is changing or getting sick. Let's get onto your findings then. Firstly, from that pulse oximetry data, was there a clear cardiorespiratory signature of neonatal sepsis? Well, the features that we chose and the modeling methods that we use did predict sepsis very well. And a strength of this study is that we had three collaborating NICUs with infants from each center, and we were able to externally validate. 
And that showed that the model could be useful at many NICUs with infants with slightly different demographics and clinical management. And so across all those three different NICUs, was the predictive power of your model using the heart rate and the oxygen saturation better than just the heart rate alone? Yes, the combined model with heart rate and SpO2 did perform better than heart rate alone. And we also tested whether we could use pulse rate from the pulse oximetry recording in place of heart rate from the ECG leads and found that the performance using pulse rate was very similar. And so we termed the combined model of heart rate in SpO2 data PALS or a pulse oximetry warning score. And how much warning did your pulse oximetry warning system give you? How, how, how long before the onset of sepsis did the alarm bells ring? Sure. We plotted the predicted risk over time. And while we didn't in this study set thresholds, we saw an increase from a baseline as early as 24 hours before the, the blood culture was drawn to diagnose sepsis. And how did your machine learning method compare against those static demographic factors that we talked about? Right. We found that the static demographic factors just alone perform fairly well to predict sepsis, but they give you just a point in time and and don't change over time. So combining all of this information with the dynamic risk factors, heart rate and SpO2 patterns seems to be the best approach. So really impressive results from this pulse oximetry warning system. What needs to happen next, in your opinion, to really validate its predictive power? The next step is prospective monitoring and figuring out how best to display the information at the bedside, human factors and protocols that might go along with implementing something like this, but also how it would perform at a prospective episodic level and for events other than sepsis. Since our definition of sepsis is not perfect, how does it predict events without a positive blood culture, but that also result in a significant cardiorespiratory deterioration? Ultimately, the plan would be to do a clinical trial to test the impact at the bedside. So you're a clinician. Did you get heavily into coding in the development of these machine learning algorithms or or did you was this the result of a fruitful collaboration with some coders? A little bit of both. I began working with this group in my pediatric residency and as I got more involved with the work I realized that I needed to learn more about modeling and predictive analytics and machine learning and so I've taken several courses, but also learned a lot from my mentors. I know just enough coding to be dangerous and speak the language of the data scientists on the team to understand what they're doing and to help direct the data analytics in a way that applies to clinical care and gets at the the clinical scenario that we think will be useful for babies. And I wonder just generally, do you see machine learning becoming more of a feature in pediatrics? Definitely. I think that there's so much that we can learn from the data at hand that we can't see. And computers and machine learning algorithms can help to uncover those relationships and patterns and present it in a way that we can use in our decisions 
the combination of artificial and human intelligence is the way of the future. That was Bryn Sullivan from the University of Virginia. And that's it for this episode. Please join us again in a month's time for your next edition of Pediapod. I'm Jeff Marsh. Thanks for listening. <laughs>